Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the Frequent Issuers Managing Editor at Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. Each week we bring you the most interesting stories from the world's capital markets and we have a new episode out every Friday for free. So just go to any podcast platform, search for us and subscribe. And if you want to delve into anything we talk about on here in any greater detail, just go to globalcapital.com. Now, it's been a particularly exciting week in the capital markets for journalists because we've had the opportunity to observe borrowers of all stripes trying every trick in the book to issue bonds in what are proving to be very difficult markets indeed. But before we get into that, we urge you to stick with us in this episode because John and I will be talking to our senior emerging markets reporter, George Collard, about a fascinating bond issued from the Middle East this week for Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, the Public Investment Fund. As we'll discover, John, uh, the PIF seem to have a great time in the market, but for other borrowers, it's a much trickier place to raise funding. So what, what are the main problems that issuers are facing at the moment? Yeah, it's fair to say, though, that the market was generally better this week. Um, the, the, the last few weeks have been particularly stressful um, with, you know, the, the, the UK, of all places, causing a lot of upset not just in its own sterling market, but um, more widely across capital markets by the the, the alarming um, fiscal looseness that uh, Quasi Kwarteng introduced, and uh, which spooked markets and generally sort of revived fears of of chaos and inflation. But um, things things settled down a bit this week, but that means lots more issuers are trying to come to the market because you know there is funding to do. And, you know, the, the, the market since the summer ended have not been particularly conducive. So, um, you know, th- there's work to be done and um, but 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 it's not an easy market. So so issues have really got to sort of think about how they, you know, how they can best approach the market. Yeah, I tell you why I think this this particular um, bout of issuance and volatility and so on is particularly interesting and it's because previously when we've had weeks where the markets were bad or not great or you know the mm. the windows for issuing debt were was small issuers would happily sit it out and what i've noticed uh in some of our coverage this week is that borrowers are saying well they're going to come and bring pre-funding anyway um because they don't think it's going to get any better anytime soon it's not they're not seeing this as a sort of a random blip now like take the uk mini budget from the end of september that was uh that's a classic sort of spike in volatility that should then settle down but i think the overall backdrop of rising rates recession inflation uh the sort of geopolitical fallout of the war in ukraine and and so on um really has issuers worried that things will be difficult and the borrowing costs will be elevated for quite some time to come. Um, so we've seen issuers across markets uh, deploying a number of different tactics to make sure they can get deals done. And um, well, let's let's talk about a few of those. I suppose the first and most obvious one is that uh, a number of them have told us uh, this week that the most important thing is to be ready to go uh, the minute you have an opportunity, because that opportunity might not last. Yes, and it's even the 
very biggest and and uh, most able borrowers that are, that are having to do this. We, our colleague Atanas Dinov spoke this week to um, Alessandro Lolli, who's the treasurer or head of funding at Intesa San Paolo, one of the very biggest Italian banks, and um, and he was emphasising that that you've really got to be able to dip into the market at, at a moment's notice because opportunities will come up. Uh, and with the general level of stress in the market, you've got to be able to take them um, and and sort of act. Yeah, and in the um, sovereign supranational agency market, we saw uh, an example of that too um, when the German policy bank, KFW, which had been looking to do a trade in dollars, suddenly switched to euros and was able to raise 4 billion euros at a moment's notice. Now, of course, this sort of... Um, responsiveness and flexibility and being ready to go tends to suit the bigger borrowers, the bigger, more sophisticated institutions like Intesa, uh, like KFW and the big SSA issuers. Um, and like a lot of the banks that we saw bring um, bring a sort of sudden glut of, of deals this week, it won't necessarily favour some of these smaller issuers that need a bit more time to engage with investors before they bring a deal. That's right. And um I think you know it is a mantra that that debt capital markets bankers have, have you know really always try and p- convey to issuers, particularly corporate issuers that, that come to the market. Much less often is you need to get all your documentation work done. You need to have the right approvals internally. Um, sometimes that can be a problem. You know if the board expects you to do a euro deal and you need to do a dollar deal, <clears throat> and it's difficult to get them to change change the approval then you know that's clearly going to be an obstacle for you so it's these sort of issues you know another one can be just having people um sort of at their desks you know if, if the mm. right people are away um or, or sort of you know on holiday or sort of busy with a with a some other kind of management uh issue then you know it can be difficult to get the right focus so those are all the sorts of things that, that you need to kind of get ironed out and these are things you can control that's an important thing you know nobody can control what's going to happen to yields or or spreads but um but 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 get the things right you can yeah and of course investors need to get those approvals in place too which is why it works well for the uh bigger borrowers because um it's much easier to get those approvals done or they're sort of pre-approved and they have bigger credit lines available but um for smaller issuers you know, uh, letting letting people know you're coming uh, as best you can um, is is obviously good good advice. Uh, I guess the other thing, uh, one of the other things issuers are having to do is, um, is frankly, is pay up a bit more. Um, Atanas found in the uh, bank finance market this week that um, for the sort of big banks um, doing uh, what, what is called senior unsecured issuance. And a good example of a, a company that that's not a frequent borrower that that managed to execute well was Smith and Nephew, which is a UK company that makes medical equipment. They've never done a euro bond before. They they wanted to do one. They've been waiting for more than a week after doing a two day roadshow to to get investors familiar with them and and allow them to open credit lines. Um, but then, then they had to wait for a week because the, the market just simply wasn't conducive. Um, and, and they finally came on Tuesday this week and and it was a good decision. They, um, they got four and a quarter billion euros of orders for a 500 million deal, which is a terrific result, really. And um, the, um, you know, as a result, the, the, the funding was was what they'd hoped for. Um, 
they were able to tighten the deal considerably. Um, and, that, and that just shows it's a good example of uh, getting everything organised and then being able to choose your right moment. Well, and I think as we'll discover later on, public investment fund uh, did did kind of a similar thing. Yes. We were expecting yeah. them to come, or they could have come perhaps uh, last week, and instead they they paused and um, they got a they got a great deal done. So um, yeah, I, I guess that sort of preparedness is um, is is key, especially for new mm. borrowers. Um, I guess you know another thing uh, that the more established borrowers are having to do is 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 a lot more basic, and it's just simply paying more paying more mm. premium over mm. their existing debt to investors. Uh, there's a good example of this in the bank bond market where um, Atanas uh, learned that whereas issuers, and these are like the big banks doing their big trades, their big senior unsecured trades, were paying premiums of 15 basis points to 20 basis points over their existing debt in September, that premium has gone up now to 25 to 35 basis points. Um so you know paying investors uh more for the risk they're taking on um but the, i think you know there were there were some other more um more subtle subtle tricks at work i thought one interesting one from the ssa market uh was from an eib deal now the eib could have brought a new line because it issued a euro uh, sorry because it issued a billion euro bond or issued a billion euros of debt this week and it could have done that as a new bond but instead it decided to tap an old bond maturing in 2033. And the effect of that is to make that bond more liquid, uh, to give investors reassurance that they can get in and out of that trade um, a lot more Mm -hmm. than they they could if it was just a sort of much smaller billion euro line. Yeah, it's... um, And they were also able to choose one that that wasn't necessarily the tightest trading of Mm. their outstanding bonds. They actually chose one that, that is attractive to investors um and and w- but with that they were able to price it without any new issue premium and that's good for the european investment bank because it it um it, it doesn't widen their their curve yeah. um it, it, and it sort of looks like it looks like a, a an impressive deal um i think i think the whole issue of size is interesting isn't it because mm. you've got and it sort of works both ways because this liquidity argument is you know do a big size you know because that's investors prefer the big the big deals but but there's also an argument that um you know restraining size helps um to get demand isn't there yeah yeah well we saw that a lot in the corporate bond market this week didn't we there were 12 tranches of debt from uh, a number of borrowers and seven of those were limited to 500 million euros the idea being that if uh, investors know there are well it's, it's basically driving scarcity to um mm. create create sort of uh, what people in the market call price tension, i.e. a greater amount of demand. And it seems to have worked. Now, um, I think it's been used, it's been deployed with another another tactic, which I think is interesting that we should talk about, which is around pricing. Um, but issuers have used this to drive demand and also to uh, achieve a better cost of funding. And that is to start pricing very wide um, in the hope of snaring early early interest from investors and then bringing the pricing right in in their own favor and hoping that enough issue sorry enough investors stick around for the deal to to make it work um and if we look at some of those corporate bonds that were printed this week there's edf the french energy provider that um tightened 
pricing during execution on one of its tranches by 20 basis points uh, this week. Um, but, you know, EDP, it's sort of Portuguese equivalent, managed to tighten pricing by 55 basis points. Uh, so again, it's it's using, it's sort of baiting investors with this idea that they're getting something scarce but cheap um, and then and then using that early interest to try and bring pricing right in but that, that could backfire couldn't it john there is a, i mean it hasn't done yet but there is a risk that that could backfire for a borrower yes it can do i think um the the example of electrolux was one a few a week or two ago um when they they weren't the market basically turned sour as they were in the market and they weren't able to tighten it much and and what this can mean is that you end up with a very widely priced bond and and it's not so much that they're that's you know the extra cost for that bond in itself but it widens your whole curve and that you know doesn't look good um it sort of uh, disappoints investors and um you know kind of could make your next bond more expensive but i think the i think the the this technique of starting wide and and cranking the pricing in a long way has been there a long time it's mm. it sort of really came after the the last financial crisis when the, the market was generally a bit stressed out and and corporate issues just got into the habit of doing this a lot and it would go in waves you know the argument against it is that it annoys investors that the if you tell them they're going to get you know 160 over and they end up getting 120 it just it just it just annoys them because it's not the same proposition as they started out with but but against that you can say well all's fair in love and war it's a book build you know if you if, if it gets too tight pull your order out and you know they don't really have anything to complain about, but but I think what what's interesting this week is is just how far it's gone. I think I think the the market's taken it to a to a new level uh, at the moment, and and it's really it's it's a, it's a very cautious form of behaviour, and 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 that we're seeing it so much is really a sign of that uh, that caution. But the deal that really stuck out for me was Deutsche Bahn. Right, which is the German railway company. It's something like ninety nine point eight percent owned by the government. It's a fantastic credit, you know. The basically, you know, very towards the top end of the corporate sector. Um, but and and so they're not an issuer that that needs to be sloppy about pricing at all. But they uh, tightened, you know, came out with initial price thoughts that were ended up being fifty basis points wider than um, where they ended up. So that that really is a sign that this this sort of start wide and cranking has gone to extremes yeah i mean in in more normal markets that sort of pricing move would draw quite a lot of criticism because people would say that the people involved in doing that deal didn't know what they were talking about um but the fact that there are so many borrowers making price moves of that magnitude uh, at the moment and you know this was not a particularly quiet week for the market like there were deals getting yeah. done yeah um it really shows quite what a sort of special set of circumstances we're in yeah it does and i think um nobody would i, I don't think criticize deutsche bahn for doing that um mm. well i think in my view they would be wrong to criticize them the even if in in different market conditions that tightening might have been only say 15 or 10 mm. um the, the fact that it's 50 now I don't think matters. They end up getting a good price and an, and a successfully executed deal, and that's what matters. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, other other issuers have done the same thing in other asset classes. The SSA market has uh, has, has, has seen a similar sort of 
tactic deployed but of course there uh the idea of um a big new issue premium is four basis points and uh yeah issues have been tightening that by yeah. two basis points yeah. and, and they think <laughs> oh you know isn't this in this a bit risque it's yeah. it's 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 a subtle pleasure as the ssa mm. market um and then one one thing there that uh one deal there that caught my eye um also was for the European Financial Stability Facility, um, which was a, a, a temporary bailout vehicle set up in 2010 to, to extend loans to Eurozone sovereigns in, in crisis. Now, um, the point is, they've, they've done the thing that, uh, you know, should be quite obvious. They've basically given investors what they want. Um, now, the reason that's sort of notable in the SSA market is that it's a much more issuer-led market perhaps than others these are frequent borrowers um and they tend to have a lot more sort of say about what they want to do but what the what the efsf did this week was uh it having not done a five-year deal all year realized that investors were interested in shorter dated trades which are generally a lot less volatile than longer dated trades in markets such as these and with that it was able to get a 15 billion euro book price a three and a half billion euro bond and now it's done for the year it doesn't have to come back to the market so um i guess and what another, was the maturity that was a five year right yeah, yeah so okay. yeah so, so you know i think a good example of um a borrower sort of responding to what investors want to to make sure it doesn't have to come back to the market again but we've seen almost the the opposite happen in the financial institutions market haven't we well, yeah, this week where yeah. they've been terribly uh sort of stuck to the short end in the, in their issuance for, for quite a long time. Yeah, but now they're breaking out. Um, and this is thanks to rising rates. And it's kind of the opposite story, really, of what we've just been discussing. Um, because what has happened, essentially, is that yields have risen high enough such that insurance companies and other uh, investors that buy longer dated bonds can now hit their yield targets and these longer maturities. And so there was a bit of demand this week for seven and eight year bonds from, um, I think the French insurer AXA printed uh, an 850 million euro eight year deal and um, BBVA and Intesa San Paolo, Spanish and Italian banks respectively, as we've talked about already, uh, they priced seven year uh, senior deals on Wednesday and Thursday. So it was interesting to see um finally bank or financial institutions able to issue something longer than they have before and i think it's also it goes back to this point about people expecting spreads to stay wider for longer um because you know the counter argument to issuing you know a seven year uh, at, at the current elevated levels is well you're going to have to pay that high level for a long time mm. and um you know some people still think for, for banks they should they should stay short simply because um not so much that it's that much cheaper but that at least you won't have to pay it for, for very long but um you know i think i think the, 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 the there is a sort of growing acceptance that you know spreads are wide they're going to stay wide they could even go wider yeah, well, just in terms of outright yields as well, um, mm. there's not been an awful lot of incentive uh, to buy anything um, of greater duration because the sort of benchmark curves from which all of this debt is priced, so if we take the euro swap rate curve, for example, um, from which you know other, other sort of yields are derived, the, the, it's very flat. Um, so mm. you don't really get paid extra for buying, you know, 
bonds with a longer maturity that carry carry sort of greater duration risk. Um, it's it's interesting that they must have just nudged over what these insurance companies want to buy to persuade them to go a bit further down down the tracks. But um, you know, while the swap curve remains that flat, I wonder if we'll see see that trend develop or extend further. Yeah, I mean, I think the the insurance demand uh, uh, coming to life has been a big feature of the corporate market for for months actually, and uh, and uh, um, you know that that it's now being felt in the financial institutions market is. Will will probably be a significant factor in that market for for a while. Well, we shall keep our eye on that as the weeks and months roll by. But in the meantime, we spoke to George Collard about a spectacular bond market debut for Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. Hello, George. Welcome back to the podcast. Good morning. Thanks very much. It's good to be back. Um, Now, you have um, a particularly interesting deal from your market uh, this week to talk about. Um, That was a deal for Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. Um, Now, no one can dispute that it was a successful piece of deal execution, but that in emerging market bonds, that's been um, a rarity this year, hasn't it? Can you just tell us a bit about the deal and why it's uh, such a such a boon for that part of the bond market? Um, there's yeah, as you say, it's it, it's an interesting deal for for several reasons. On the face of things, you know, a three billion um, deal for the Middle East across three chances is is not um, remarkable, but it's when you go in further and look at the at the tranches there's the five year the 10 year but then also a century which at the best of times in, in emerging markets that's that's pretty rare but in this market that we've had this year with the sell-off we've had the outflows and bond funds um it, it's actually quite extraordinary um yeah that's also, super bullish isn't it especially in a time of rising interest rates and and yeah there, there was a hundred year tranche which is rare in the best of markets um in emerging markets but PIF have gone for it in in what's been a really tough year for emerging market bonds. Usually they're a sort of trophy, um, a a sort of showing off way of of issuing a bond, which I think is partly the case of PIF, but they have also said there are practical reasons for doing it. So George, what was was special about the deal? Um, There were a number of firsts. Um, It was the first green bond from a sovereign wealth fund. It was the first 100-year bond from a sovereign wealth fund. It was the FERG Reg S only 100-year bond. So that means that um, U.S. If it was Reg S and 144A, for example, which many emerging market bond, dollar bonds are, U.S. investors can partake if the 144A is there. But that wasn't there this time, so um, it was the first Reg S only 100-year bond, and it was the first 100-year public green bond. So there are several firsts, um, and I guess the first, the, given how successful it seems to have gone, are there other sovereign wealth funds that will look at green bonds, um, seeing as PIF was the first? And so um, tell us a little bit about the pricing of the deal. Um, how much did, how many dollars did uh, the PIF raise across each tranche? And um, how closely did it price to the Saudi Arabian sovereign? Because that's another big bond issuer, isn't it, over recent years? So it's yeah, a good benchmark. They've issued, issued plenty of bonds and, and plenty of big bonds as well. Um, so PIFs wasn't as big as that. It was at $3 billion. Um, the the first two tranches, so the five and the ten year, were 1.25 billion each, and then the long hundred year tranche was uh, 500 million, and it priced around 45 basis points um, above the Saudi sovereign curve, which 
I think is about the same, roughly the same sort of area as another big um, Saudi issue, Saudi Aramco. Yeah. Now, now in the Middle East has been um, a sort of a a beacon uh, in the emerging market bond landscape this year, which has been quite bleak for issuance, hasn't it? So, if I guess if anywhere anywhere was to be able to bring uh, a deal like this, it would be a borrower from the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. They're they're flush with cash because of the high energy prices this year. Um, they're they're generally a bit higher rated than other parts of CME at least. So, and yeah, like, as you say, Central and Eastern Europe has been really struggling this year for obvious reasons with its proximity to Ukraine and and a lot of African borrowers are just locked out of the markets because of the cost. Um, so yeah, if if any if a deal like this was going to come, it would be coming from the Middle East. George, how much encouragement should other issuers take from this deal? Do you think that you know it sort of could create a bit of momentum in the market and help other issuers come yes in a sense it will encourage from that point of view it shows that there is still demand there and and you know you you still can get these these kind of deals done um if if you'd ask somebody this year whether there would have been a hundred year bond from an emerging markets um issuer they they would have laughed at you um so in that sense yes it will encourage other emerging market issuers that it shows the demand is there investors do still want to to buy um even a such a long duration bond like that on the flip side pif is quite a unique issuer it's the saudi sovereign wealth fund and it has that power and that allure um and there aren't many issuers out there in emerging markets that have that kind of financial muscle either yeah i mean it's it's quite something isn't it to do a hundred year bond on your bond market debut i think that's what's the really that's the really interesting point there have been hundred year bonds before both from emerging market sovereigns um and and developed world sovereigns for that matter uh but to get that from a debut borrower that's that's quite a sort of powerful statement and obviously i think that's that seems to be what the pif was after with this deal wasn't it to to make a big bold statement yeah i i mean they, they openly said that they don't actually need the money right now um this this exercise was to familiarize investors with PIF to yeah get their foot in the door for for more and potentially bigger deals in future. So yeah, that's what makes it even more extraordinary, I guess, is that they went for such a such a long duration when they didn't even need to do any bonds in the first place. Given that they don't need the money, is it sensible to issue a hundred year bond because they do have to pay more for it, don't they? And you know, basically, you're committing to paying was it a six point seven percent yield for 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 the life of the bond when you could you could borrow the money for a shorter term at a lower rate? Yeah, exactly. I think this is part of the showing off, in a sense. You could say with PIF is that they're they're saying we can do this and we can afford it and we're and we're happy to. Um, and yeah, you're you're right. It does, from a practical point of view, a financial point of view, seem odd, but I think. Um, firstly, they they did say they wanted to build out the curve, um, which they've done, you know, um, and yeah, I, I think it's the the sort of status symbol that they were are able, willing, fina- able from a market point of view, but also financially able to mm. to, to pay mm. that over that such a long period of time. Were there any other reasons why they said they wanted to do a hundred year? Um, yeah, I mentioned as building out the curve. I mean, traditionally, I think debut issuers normally go for a sort of 10 and 30 year rather than a 5, 10 and 100 year. Um, but there was also, um, it, this was a green bond and they, they wanted to show that 
they're there for the long haul, essentially on green projects, then this is not a sort of fad for the next 10, 15 years, Saudi um, investing in, in green projects that this is, you know, for the rest of the century, effectively. And secondly, they also wanted to, um, they told us, attract, you know, super long term real money investors who are, who are going to be with them for, for yeah, decades and decades. Well, this is the interesting part of the whole whole caper, isn't it? Is um, is is Saudi's uh, sort of transformation from um, an economy that basically thrives off of oil and not much else uh, to to something a bit more sustainable? And there's a lot of controversy here, isn't there? I mean, I think a lot of people would tell you the only thing green about Saudi Arabia is the flag, um, whereas uh, I think the country itself has this. Uh, vision 2030 project and is doing all sorts of other things to try and wean itself off um oil income what was the response uh in the market to to this green bond because um obviously the deal itself went well but you know there are a lot of differing opinions as to among investors as to what is a good green investment and what is a bad one so what did some of the uh what did some of the investors tell us about this trade yeah, I mean, clearly, yeah, the deal obviously went well. So there were lots of investors who were happy with it. But yes, there were there were plenty of investors who, yeah, essentially said, you know, you see Saudi Arabia doing a green bond and it immediately raises eyebrows. Um, mm. One investor told us that although they may well be spending the money on green projects and the, the, you know, the framework of a green bond means that that money has to be spent on green projects, all the other non-green stuff that the PIF does effectively wipes that out and that's why they were not interested in buying the bond um and secondly a lot of some of the investors we spoke to looking at the projects that are in that green framework framework um just didn't don't think they're very green um hmm. and then on top of that there are the other esg concerns with saudi arabia um away from the e so the g in particular the governance um which really puts off investors and so even if a bond is labeled green from from saudi arabia it still doesn't fit their fit their esg rules yeah i mean i wonder if there's a, a a sovereign out there that you could say is um entirely squeaky clean when it comes to um the s and s and the g of uh, esg the social and the government's aspects but um obviously obviously you can see it's particularly acute for somewhere like saudi arabia and uh, what were some of the um sort of projects that investors were saying weren't green enough or weren't green at all um is, it, is this being used to fund uh the neon project for example which is the big city they're building out of nothing in the desert up in the northwest yes that that's one of there, there are quite a long list of projects under the um, vision 2030 um but yeah neon is one that some investors said you know this is just not a green project and um money from what PIF will be raising on the bond market in future will be going towards that and other projects similar to it. Another one I, I believe was the uh, the winter Asian games that Saudi Arabia wants to host in a few years time and they'll be essentially building a winter resort in the desert um, which again just investors are just not convinced that that is actually a green investment. It's it's not it's not the classic um, you know climate change mitigation project you think of is it when you think of a green bond? No, I mean PIF made the point that you know a green project is a green project whether it's being built by Saudi Arabia or Norway. Um, and I think yeah, if, if you're talking about a solar power plant or, or something like that, then that's a fair point. But yeah, uh, investors were uh, yeah not convinced that building new resorts in the desert etc. and new cities is, is is green no matter how futuristic the technology there may be 
And it's hard to imagine Norway building a, a, de- a desert space up in the up in the Arctic circles for um, you know winter sun for its, uh, its 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 residents that live in the dark. That said, perhaps this is the, exactly the sort of green deal that investors should be funding. Uh, John, there was something um, along those lines that we uncovered, wasn't there, when we when we covered the deal? Well, I think uh, certainly the supporters of the deal would argue that it is particularly necessary to to finance transition in a country like Saudi Arabia. They have, after all, the kingdom has committed to a net zero target. It's 2060, later than uh, other, you know, many other countries which are going for 2050 and, and, you know, much later than environmentalists say is necessary. And there's also obviously a lot of criticism that they're not making the kind of emission cuts in, in the early years that, that are what really needed. Nevertheless, in the direction of travel, the, the, the kingdom has got um, sort of much more with the programme than, um, you know, might have been feared a few years ago. And, um, you, you know, so the, so the people backing the deal, which include the lead managers working on it, argue that, that it's um, sort of one to support, don't they, George? Yeah, one of the bankers made the point that you know if there, if there is one vehicle or or one country that has to transition to green it's saudi arabia and if they do they'll drag the rest of the world with it and and the the vehicle that saudi arabia are using to to, to fund their vision 2030 and then in the longer term the the net zero plans is pif so he, he said you you cannot get more esg than um than pif because it is the vehicle that will be helping Saudi Arabia go green. And if Saudi Arabia goes green and is um, the rest of the world will, by extension, have to follow. You often hear a sort of similar argument, don't you, with regard to human rights in Saudi Arabia, if we're talking about these sort of social and governance factors in ESG, that uh, exactly that, the country has further to go uh, and it has made sort of, for, by its own standards, quite startling changes in a very short period of time already um so it's it's kind of hard to judge it through a western european lens some might argue where these sort of principles have have been longer established and uh, a further in development i think it it does show that the choices investors have to make and just like all of us have to make about issues like this are not straightforward yeah. you know whether it's better to engage or to disengage from somebody whose practices are, are less than perfect is not an easy decision, by by which I don't mean to be, I'm not sort of trying to cover up uh, really a soft argument that, that you should just invest in everything and 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 never never get tough. I don't mean that at all. But but I think um, you know the, the carrot and the stick are both are both necessary. Yeah, it's interesting that they they branded this a green bond. I I think of it almost more of a transition bond. Now, if you think of some of those examples, those were bonds that were issued for companies like Marfrig, uh, which is a uh, South American meat packing um, company that is, or meat processing company that is um, associated with a lot of Amazonian deforestation. Um, no one wants to sort of fund that. Who has um, an ESG sort of frame of mind, I suppose. But if the company is to change, then it needs funding to to make that change. So that's 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 really the grey area that we get in 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 
in the green bond market, if that's not too much of a uh, mixed colour metaphor. Yeah, I think it's it's also important to note with PIF that they did say that they got orders from investors across the, all shades of green is the phrase they used. Um, mm. So dedicated green funds and investors um, with no green mandate, but who were obviously attracted, I'm sure, not just by the green aspect, but PIF itself, but the green aspect would have helped. Yeah. I think it's overall, you know, there there will be criticism and there'll definitely be investors and voices that, that disagree that this was a green bond in the true sense. But, but nevertheless, I think we have to say that it's a good thing they did it because it, it does keep it does raise the conversation. You know, they have to it, it increases the scrutiny. It means they have to talk, talk about these issues. Um, they themselves are putting them on the table. And if you contrast that with some of the other investment that's going on at the moment, there's plenty of it in the, in the equity market, for example, where, you know, drilling companies in the Middle East are coming to market going well, um, you know, which is unashamedly pro fossil fuel. Um, you know, the, the the one that that at least tries to be green shouldn't be the one that gets all the brickbats. That's right, because they could have they could, of course, you know, for a borrower of this credit quality, they're a single rated borrower um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the kingdom is fantastically wealthy. They could just have done a conventional bond, couldn't they? They needn't bother doing a green bond. Yeah, and a lot of people will call it greenwashing, but but um, at least at least with greenwashing, there's some you know green is is part of the conversation. I think I mm. think um, and and it's you know criticism and encouragement uh, both need to go on. I think. Well, no doubt the PIF's next bond issue will be just as hotly anticipated and you'll be able to read about it in Global Capital, where you'll also be able to keep track of how issuers from across the board manage to get their funding done in tough and volatile markets. Thank you to John and George for joining me to record this edition of the podcast and to Gerald Hayes, our producer, for putting it together. We'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. So thank you very much for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 